please join me, ladies and gentlemen. Let's welcome this evening's guest moderator, author Anne Leary, and tonight's guest, author Susan Orlean. Hello, everybody. I'm Anne Leary, and uh, this is Susan Orlean, obviously. And I wanted to thank you all for coming. And just, um, I'm sure you all know Susan, but I just wanted to give a quick um, intro. Uh, Susan Orlean has been a staff writer for The New Yorker since 1992. She has also written for Rolling Stone, Esquire, Vogue, and many other magazines. She is the author of several best-selling books, including My Kind of Place, The Bullfighter Checks Her Makeup, the Orchid Thief, the film adaptation of which was called Adaptation. And she has just finished writing Rintin Tin, The Life and the Legend. Please help me welcome Susan Arlene. Thank you. Thank you for coming. And um, right after the um, book event, I'll be showing people how to speed up your Mac. So We know many of you came here for the right. workshop. Anybody here for, <laughs> with a genius appointment? We'll be getting to you shortly. Um, I was asked to start today with a little, look, these are people who thought this was the tech. Yeah, no. yeah. <laughs> um, I'm going to start with a little reading from the book, and that'll give you uh, a bit of a taste. Um, I have to set this up a bit, which is to say that I, in the course of working on this book, I wanted as much as possible to really nail down my sense of the real legend of Rintin Tin. And it was very important to me to both see where he lived, where he was born, and when he was, where he was buried. I'm going to read to you a little bit from the section uh, about finding his grave. Everybody can hear okay? All right. Um, before I read this, I should tell you, the, the fact is that Rintintin is buried in Paris, and the person who owned him and had found him originally was named Lee Duncan. So I think that uh, other than that, you don't need to know anything else. If you take the Paris Metro to the Marie Clichy station and walk north along the wide, shabby Rue Mart, past the long blocks of tire shops and falafel stands, you will eventually come to a small bridge that arches over the Seine. The bank on the far side is steep, slick with moss, and sags toward the river like an old man's shoulders, as if it were just too weary to hold itself up anymore. Le Cimetière des Chiennes, the cemetery of dogs, is a few steps west of the bridge, sagging on that saggy bank under a heavy canopy of huge brooding trees. I had come to Le Cimetière des Chiens to find Rintintin on a hot day in August. It was the kind of day when Paris feels becalmed, stewing in the thick air, and the few people outside at midday move at a sleepwalker's pace down the quiet streets. Just a few cars puttered by in the dull sunlight as I walked down Rue Mart, and I was alone in the cemetery as I roamed among the tombstones of Titi and Hippie and Pussy and Room, looking for the grave of Rintin Tin. I'm going to skip ahead a little bit here. Uh, 
The cemetery is an elegant space set off from the street by a Baroque stone entryway and a curlicued iron gate. It's very Parisian, shady and somber, filled with spindly rose bushes and gnarly topiary. Inside, near the guardhouse, gravel paths radiate outward from an enormous stone sculpture of a St. Bernard named Barry. More than 3,000 animals are buried in the cemetery, mostly dogs and cats, but also birds, a horse, several monkeys, and at least one pig. I read Barry's gravestone, he saved 40 lives, and then started down one of the gravel paths. A few wild-looking cats were loafing on a tombstone, watching me with narrowed eyes, and then vanishing as soon as I got close, as if they were some sort of optical illusion. The graves were arranged in haphazard rows, a jumble of shapes and sizes, like a mouthful of very bad teeth, big marble mausoleums beside tiny tombstones. I passed the graves of Funny and Doodoo and Dick and Ching Ling Fu, my best and most devoted friend, he loved only me. Waddle and Cowboy and Rita and Tushy, Ricky Ticky and Mizuki and Chiquita and Merrill. The headstone for Harry, a stout black Labrador, had a glass globe on top that was filled with three half-gnawed tennis balls. A basset hound named Piggy was memorialized with a photograph of himself in better days, chewing on a lumpy knuckle bone. The oldest graves for Belgrano, who left this world in 1906, and Mirai, gone in 1903, were as smooth as pats of butter. The carvings of their names almost melted away. <clears throat> Excuse me. The cemetery guard was a short man with a rosy face and the body of a bowler, a tight fit in his little guardhouse near the entrance. He had given me a map of the cemetery, and I noticed Rintintin's grave marked on it along with some other famous animals. But as soon as I saw the name, I folded up the map and stuck it in my backpack. I wanted to find the grave on my own. Thanks, Susan. I'm, I'm so glad you read that particular passage because I was going to um, talk to you about the fact that it occurred to me while I was reading this book that uh, an author might be able to write a book like this from the comfort of her farm in upstate New York and not have to travel at all. But in fact, you went to all, all the places you wrote about in the book, you actually went there, um, which, as you just experienced, made the book that much more colorful. And I have to say that uh, further on in this chapter, um, there's a passage where the with the gatekeeper and a comment he makes. And that, um, so my question for you was, why do you think it's important for um, nonfiction writers to do the kind of old-fashioned legwork that maybe um, isn't necessarily required today with the internet and um, facts so available, but um, that particular passage where the gatekeeper made this comment is the thing that, after I read it and was driving around, stuck with it and added the color, and I just wanted you to talk a little bit about that. It's uh, an interesting world we live in because it's true, I could have done, and I certainly did a lot of the reporting from the comfort of my desk, wearing pajamas and um, living the life you imagine all writers these days living, which is connected to the world through your ethernet. And I think it's a, a dangerous direction to go. I think while it's an amazing resource to be able to look in the libraries of practically everywhere around the world, 
Uh, I was reading archives from the Imperial War Museum in London um, online and thinking, this is amazing. This has made reporting available that couldn't have been available in the past. But there is a huge loss to not be there. First of all, for readers, it's a huge loss because there's a kind of monotony to reporting that's all done third-hand online. Uh, it, it's hard to tell the story of discovery when all it, the, the whole kind of preamble to the discovery is, I googled. <laughs> you know, and that, that doesn't tell you anything. You know, I googled, I googled Rinton Tin's grave. I mean, you can, it's on findagrave.com. I mean, I saw it. And then I thought, this is not what it's about. Um, certainly, there's a texture to being out in the world that's incredibly important. There's so much that you pick up by actually being there, actually talking to people. And honestly, in a book that was so historical, I felt it was all that much more important to take it from being history and pull it into the present time experience those places and people that I was writing about as much as I could in real time. And I think now, because so much is available, is available for free online, it almost, you, you almost need to do that more. Um, because that adds another dimension to it, is your own, um, well, for example, the, as I said, the gatekeeper, the people you met, um, you went to the orphanage where Lee Duncan, the trainer, uh, was spent his time as a child, and you went to the, um, you know, the houses in Beverly Hills where Rin Tin Tin and other uh, famous actors from the silent film age, which I learned in Susan Book, actually earned a lot of money and owned homes in Beverly Hills. Right. And um, all of that added a texture to it that um, that made that made it it stuck with me and, and your, your natural curiosity that we all love um, and about I, you as I, an author. I mean, one thing we have to remember is, um, and this is probably the worst place to say this, but <laughs> not everything is digitized, too. I mean, I'm sorry? Uh, praise the Lord. <laughs> it's a revival meeting now. No, um, I mean, there is, of course, a huge amount is digitized, but not everything. And there were things I found by actually physically going to libraries because it isn't all online. I also think for, for me, there was always the feeling that I wanted readers to feel that they were coming on a journey with me, that, that we were going somewhere, and that somewhere wasn't merely into the material, but into the experience of being out in the world and trying to track this story in, in, out in the real world. And so I, I really felt all along that it was an essential part of the book. Right, so maybe just, do you want to give us a quick, um, how, why, did, why did you decide to write it and a little bit about your journey? Because um, I, I know it took you 10 years to research and, and write this book. So, ah. I, <laughs> so give us a little bit of, uh, of the story of Rin Tin Tin and why you were so attracted to it. Um, I grew up, uh, the Rin Tin Tin, the television show, was on when I was very little. And I don't have a, a vivid memory of having watched it, but Rin Tin Tin always was in my mind when I was a kid. But then, of course, time passed. I hadn't thought about Rin Tin Tin literally in decades. I was doing a story about animals in Hollywood, 
and his name popped up. And I had that reaction that is the sort of Proustian, oh my God, I, I haven't thought about that name in so long, and yet it's as if I thought about it a moment before. It was so familiar. Well, my assumption was that Rin Tin Tin was a television character. That's what I knew him to be. So within that first moment of being reminded of Rin Tin Tin, the first thing that popped up was the casual mention that he was born on a battlefield in 1918. Well, it's like someone saying Santa Claus was born, <laughs> you know, in Scranton, Pennsylvania. And you think, what? He was born? And, and born in 1918? And it was really a moment of complete... Um, memory whiplash, right. a memory that was so strong that suddenly I discovered it had this deep, deep, deep uh, dimension that I knew nothing about. It it just drew me back, first of all, into this amazing history of a character and a real dog that had spanned at this point almost a hundred years, almost every single form of entertainment: silent films, talkies, radio, vaudeville books and of course television and also just remembering my own particular recollections of Rin Tin Tin and then coupled with all of this as if that weren't enough was the the sort of zealot like quality of Rin Tin Tin that <laughs> starting in World War One there was almost no significant change in American culture and to some degree, international culture that he didn't figure in in some way. So it was one of those utterly irresistible stories that, that just pulled me in and got more and more interesting as I went along, which I always think of as the essential test of a good story, that right. it, it kind of expands as you learn more rather than contracts. Right, because it's it really is, um, it's the story of... of I, I, there really was a Rin Tin Tin, and he had a kind of an up and down, kind of like a lot of people, a lot of Americans um, after world, you know, bet between the two wars and the depression. He was rich, he was poor, he was loved, he was not. It was, it was um, really quite um, amazing what I learned. And um, the silent film era, uh, I didn't understand that um, he actually kind of built Warner Brothers and supported them. Yeah. He was known at Warner Brothers as the mortgage lifter. Every time Warner Brothers ran into financial problems, they would release a Rin Tin Tin film, and they made so much money that they really did keep Warner Brothers afloat. Even though Jack Warner, um, among the various Warner Brothers, um, was quoted as saying that the dog had bit him, and you know he had some hostile feelings towards the dog, but otherwise. He said, you know, he was a bonanza. He made he made Warner Brothers really a major studio. And there's a very good chance. It, he also made ABC. Right. Um, when ABC, when the Rintintin television show first came on the air, ABC was a very small network. It was, there were only, well, there were four networks. The Dumont network went out of business soon thereafter. But ABC was a very, very small network. It had 40 affiliates at the time. And the Rin Tin Tin show was such a huge success. They also launched um, Disney that same year. And it, it's what turned ABC into a major network. You know, what I found really fun to do, and be, I think it's fitting at, that we're at the Apple Store, is um, 
when I would read about a, a, a particular film that Rin Tin Tin made, I actually rushed and looked at it on YouTube, and some of the stuff is still there, and um, it's, it's actual scenes that you described, and um, it really was uh, a different, it, the silent film, first of all, it was crazy, the stuff, the stunts this dog did that would never allow a dog, it seems so dangerous and almost probably inhumane. Um, uh, 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 trivia, but something I learned was, um, the, the ASPCA used to be called the American Humane Association, is that right? And what was right. the British word for there? Do you, oh, do you recall? Um, the Dumb Friends League. The Dumb Friends League was which, the Humane Society of the UK, which I, I think love. it's kind of, uh, it's I so evocative. It. <laughs> I'd actually like to start a movement to change the American Humane's name to Dumb Friends, Dumb. although <laughs> it could be misinterpreted. Right, um, right. And actually, American Humane, for what it's worth, was originally founded to protect the rights of animals and children. Right, right. Children were grouped with animals on <laughs> film sets. And I mean, that's how the, the whole story started when I uh, followed around a American Humane film unit that oversees the care of animals on film. Oh, is that right? I didn't yeah. know that, okay. And they no longer oversee the care of children. Um, children can be used however, no, they, um, <laughs> But, you know, the history of animals in Hollywood is a varied one. And there were times when they were protected and then actually at the point where censorship was removed, so were rules regarding the use of animals. And it was actually the worst period in Hollywood. A lot of horses in particular yeah, that were... Yeah, was sad. That was yeah, very sad, it was, that it's a kind of It's a pretty grim bit of history, but... Um, uh, Rintintin was, it, he did not live the life of luxury that his press people would have you believe, where he was basically being groomed with butter and sleeping in a golden bathtub, but he was a very rich dog. Yeah, and um, I was really, really, yeah, didn't he have a house? He had his own house, and then, oh, there were also, I was, I, there were all these other dog stars, Strongheart, yes. Bra and then he had a house, and the owners lived in a separate house, and it was quite... Uh, At the time, Rintintin was a really big silent film star. There were 70, between 70 and 80 other German shepherds making movies, and they were the big box office attraction, were German shepherds. And you wrote in your book about um, the fact that they, it makes sense that they're great silent film stars. The trainer can command them. Nobody can hear the commands. And they don't look all hammy like the humans because they don't speak anyway. Right. And, and, um, and they, but the way they lit, I did look at some of the footage, and Rin Tin Tin was known to be quite expressive, and that was what made him famous. He really looked sad and really looked... Um, tortured and you know all the emotions that humans shame love you know loss and and it, he was actually a he really was a good actor I mean his he fame was. came from his tremendous athletic ability he was um, filmed originally clearing a jump of 11 feet 9 inches right um, this was a dog that weighed 80 pounds, so it really was extraordinary, and he was really uh, athletic, but his, ultimately, his fame came from the fact that people felt that he was extreme, he, that he was a good actor, and he would be reviewed um, 
as you know, as you would review a human actor, you know, his <laughs> his eyes and ears are very expressive in this film. And the New York Times would review his performance as they would review any other dog, right. any other person. Excuse right. Me. It was sad when his son was compared to him too, and, yeah. and loser. Yeah, they, yeah. He, he didn't live up to his dad's. Uh, Standards. Uh, while we're here, uh, again, I, I feel like we should talk. I, I love that we're in the Apple Store, and the New York Times just reported last week that you have the, the Kindle single, uh, Animalish, which I was thrilled to find out that I could download onto my uh, my Mac, uh, my um, iPad. Right. Um, right. You don't have to read it on a Kindle, but um, I love that. I love, um, and I love that you seem to um, embrace kind of the future of publishing in a way that maybe some other authors haven't. Um, I think an hour ago you had 140,000 Twitter followers. Maybe you have 200,000 by now. And if we wait here long enough. Yeah, and I remember be. you tweeting last year about being so excited about the iPad coming out, and you seem to really be embracing kind of the future of publishing. Um, but you still write in a very traditional kind of um, way. So I just wanted to, to hear your views on what's going on with publishing. Um, well, it's, it's funny. The other day, somebody was asking me about e-books and how did I feel about e-books and wasn't it a tragedy that we were moving more and more towards electronic publishing? And I said, well, you know, I'm not a paper maker and I'm not a, a book binder, so... For me, it hasn't, it hasn't affected what I write, and in a way, it's allowed a flexibility. I mean, one thing about moving a certain amount onto electronic platforms away from print is that certain things that were really limiting, like each page in a magazine costs a lot of money. So the length of stories was dictated as much by editing as it was by the fact that it just costs a lot of money to print more and more and more pages. So it's the technology actually, and the cost of the means of delivering the information affected a lot of what was happening. First of all, I feel like I'm not afraid of new things. I mean, I think it's a foolish, it's a waste of energy because they're happening anyway. So. Right. Being afraid of them is just seems like a waste of time. Secondly, I like shiny objects, so um, any opportunity to purchase a new shiny object to me is a is a good day. And thirdly, I think there's a sort of populism to publishing electronically that I I really like. That there is an access that makes makes it really. Uh, available to people in a way that it perhaps hadn't been in the past. It's scary too because you definitely don't want to suddenly feel that technology is leading rather than supporting things like writing. But I, I also feel like it hasn't changed what I write, um, nor do I think it ought to. I think it's, it's simply a new kind of medium. When I came to The New Yorker in 92, we did not have photographs in The New Yorker, and we didn't have bylines on talk of the town. And each change caused a lot of anxiety. When we first started putting bylines, 
in the beginning of a story rather than at the end of the story. There was a lot of anxiety. When the first photograph that ran, people panicked. And then, and then it just becomes just, I mean, that's never what it's about. It's really about telling stories. And that's what I, I like to remind people. You know, there's a lot of excitement and, and, and turmoil and upset and, and yet we adapt to the new form. And as you pointed out to me yesterday, I mean, the funny thing with Rin Tin Tin is he managed to adapt over and over again from silent film to talkies to vaudeville to comic books to television and nothing essential changed. The idea of a dog being a hero and a dog's closeness to humans, that never changed. The idea that a story has to have an arc that finally lifts you to a place you weren't before, that never changed. It didn't change if there was a soundtrack, if there wasn't a soundtrack, if he was on stage. In a funny way, I suppose, the book inadvertently becomes a statement about how technology just helps us along and it, it never gets in the way of the things that matter. I think it, it simply propels them forward into new interesting forms. Right. I, I, I agree. I, I recall you tweeting um, last year uh, that you felt that um, the practice of, that Twitter and the practice of using the 140 character framework is kind of useful um, in uh, with helping young writers, especially of nonfiction, be concise. It's an exercise among many others that a person might try to use. But you know, yeah. if if you, it's if you can say it in 140 characters, uh, you, sometimes you have to be more clever, and sometimes it make, might make uh, you choose another word. That oh, absolutely. I mean, I think that just the way editing. Um, usually brings out the the tougher, stronger part of a of anything you've written. Trying to compact an interesting idea into a very short space is a good exercise. It doesn't mean that it stunts you forever, and that you couldn't possibly write a longer sentence. It it merely is. It's like doing sprint work when you're running right. you know it makes you stronger so that when you go and do the long run you've built up a different kind of strength a, a kind of a capacity for saying something in a very sharp precise way and knowing that it's not a matter of layering on tons of unnecessary words I love that analogy that's great so you teach uh, nonfiction writing at NYU and um, do you think you teach writing differently now that um, research, because of the internet and the um, accessibility of research that you probably, when, when you started as a journalist, it did require a lot more legwork and um, right. stuff. Do you teach differently now than you might have taught um, 10 or 20 years ago? Or? Um, I certainly, um, I am aware of the, the ease with which stories can be done merely by Googling and using Wikipedia. So I, I made my students always do stories that required that they actually got out and talked to people and that they could backfill with the reporting that they did online. But that I wanted them, you know, 20 years ago, I don't think it would have occurred to anybody that you wouldn't go out right. and no, do reporting. Right. I mean, maybe people would sit at a desk and make phone calls, but 
I think you, you simply didn't have as many opportunities for being lazy right. as you do now. So part of what I've done is to give assignments that force them to get out and to interact. And the second thing that I've done is talk with them a lot about the idea of what nonfiction is as opposed to fiction. Maybe this has always been a subject that people were unclear about, but I have found it disturbing to have students ask me very innocently, is it okay if it didn't exactly happen? <laughs> and I think that I, the fact that I'm being asked, I mean, I'm, I'm glad they're asking me. It's like having your kid come to you and say, you know, I tried heroin. You think, <laughs> I'm so glad you asked, but that's the worst thing I've ever heard. Right. <laughs> so in this case, you know, I've, I've tried to drill into them that in spite of a lot of the squishiness that seems to have emerged in the discussion about what nonfiction is, I don't see it as very squishy, and I see it as an explicit, clear line. This is true, this happened, versus I made it up, in which case it's fiction, that's great. Um, and I, I have a feeling the enormous growth of memoir and, um, you know, these the sort of hybrid forms that have made that question arise, it, it means that as a teacher of nonfiction, you've got to point it out. And you can't assume that people understand what nonfiction is, which is right. a little bit scary to me, but I, I feel like I'm glad to know that we have to talk about it. Right, right. Okay, I just got the sign that it's time to open uh, the conversation up. So does anybody have any questions for Susan? I, I think there's... Just raise your hand. We have a microphone. We'll come to you. Hi. Uh, Ms. Oline, first I want to say I think The Orchid Thief was such a brilliant book. Thank and, you. Um, you said earlier that you wanted the readers to feel that you were going on a journey with them. When you look back at the writers that you read as a young person, which ones would you um, feel inspired you to try to become as creative as them? I, um, I think the first moment where nonfiction kind of blew my mind was reading Tom Wolfe when I was in high school, um, the electric Kool-Aid acid test, and I carried that book around with me for a year. It, it was unlike anything I'd ever read, and it was very much, you know, literally, physically, a journey that he took with Ken Kesey, and, but the idea that nonfiction writing could be that thrilling and exciting, I mean, creative nonfiction or literary journalism, whatever you want to call it, um, it's, it's not a new form, but you don't grow up reading it. You know, that's not the assignments you get as a kid. So that was my first moment of reading it and thinking, this is amazing. You, you can really make the, the truth of the world, you know, the art of fact, to borrow someone else's phrase, that's what struck me. You can tell true stories about what life is like, but make them amazing and artful. After reading Tom Wolfe, I started reading Joan Didion, uh, John McPhee, the entire canon of uh, New Yorker writers, um, including some of the older writers like A.J. Liebling and Joseph Mitchell. And I just couldn't get enough of it. You know, it was to me a, a complete feast to learn and 
and be engaged that way. And I love fiction. I read tons of fiction. But this was what inspired me and made me think, boy, that's the life I want to live. I want to tell stories about interesting things I find out about. Hello. How did you uh, come to writing Rintintin? What was the, the, the spark that, that made you want to write about him? About... Rintintin. What was this, the spark that made you want to write about Rintintin? You know, I think it was that moment of... Um, realizing that something that I thought was a fictional character had a whole life. And it was so startling. And the combination of having such a powerful memory, even though I wasn't even aware that I had the memory, it would be like hearing a song that had been sung to you when you were a little kid, and you, you would never be able to out of the blue conjure it but if you heard it you have that reaction of I've known this my whole life and that's how I felt I love writing about things that are absolutely familiar to me and yet when I examine them I realize that they're totally unfamiliar that this thing that feels so so embedded in my existing memory is actually something I know nothing about to me, that's very exotic. I, I love something that superficially seems ordinary or recognizable. And then when you start digging, it just turns into something complex and almost like a kaleidoscope. And the, this story absolutely felt that way to me. You know, and that, that tends to be the, the kind of story that draws me. It's a, like a pinpoint. And then I, I kind of go in it and and then it's a whole universe. And that's what this was. In fact, it was a bigger universe than I expected. I didn't imagine a hundred years, two world wars, um, you know, the history of Hollywood. I, I really didn't know what I was getting into, but um, it was kind of wonderful that way. Hi, I'm just curious what your editor said when you decided to go with Rin Tin Tin, you know, because it seems like kind of an obscure topic, like a dog from the 20s. Um, well, everybody likes dogs, so that was my ace in the hole, that it was a dog. But also, um, it, since he wasn't only in the 20s, I mean, this was a dog who appeared in popular culture up until pra basically the present time. I mean, there was a Rin Tin Tin movie that came out last year. Um, my editors, and knock on wood for this, are, are, they're kind of used to me coming in and saying, I know it's weird, toothless orchid poacher. You know, I mean, that, that's not the subject that usually they go, oh, God, we were really looking for someone to write about that. Um, so I think I have a bit of a track record of the uh, totally weird, if you really want to do it. The, it's not that I'm looking for something odd, but... I get caught and excited about something, and quite often it's not something that seemed obviously, you know, urgent. Um, I remember a few years ago, I suddenly was seized with a desire to write for The New Yorker a story about taxidermy. And I just got really pumped up and excited about it, and I came running into the office and went into my editor's office, and I said, I, I, I really... I want to write about taxidermy and the World Taxidermy Championships are next week. 
and there was this long silence, and David Remnick said to me, let me think if we're already sending someone. And they said, no, I guess not, go, go ahead. So, um, but it, I don't look for something odd merely for its oddness, but usually, um, I mean, I have to authentically be interested, and in this case, I love dogs. I, I found the discovery that he had this long life and that he had managed to last. And frankly, I can't think of another character that has lasted and been in so many different forms of pop culture. I mean, the closest I can think of is Superman. And actually, Superman doesn't even come close because there weren't silent films and he wasn't a real person. So the, the simple, you know, the story really is about, also about memory and about what lasts, what in our culture lasts. And that really compelled me as, as a story about what people care about and what they manage to, to keep afloat through so many changes in, in our society. Uh, talking about Unique, what was it like to have Meryl Streep play you as uh, sort of a maniac in the movie adaptation? <laughs> well, when Rinton Tin plays me in the adaptation of the book, it'll be even more unique. But um, I don't know if everybody heard the question, which was just what was it like to have Meryl Streep play me? And I have to say, it was a true out-of-body experience. I was... I had blocked out everything about the movie being made. I had read the script and I had initially said, absolutely not, you cannot make this movie. You have to change my name, it's gonna ruin my career. And then, just because I'm impulsive, I said, you know, on second thought, go ahead. And when I went to the first screening, I suddenly thought, oh my God, it's too late now. It's, a, it's really like when you go into labor and you think, maybe I don't want a kid. You know, and you think, well, yeah, it's kinda tough. You're, you're gonna have a kid. I was leaving to go to the screening and they were holding a private screening. I think they figured they'd have medics on hand in case I passed out. And I remember waiting for the elevator in my building and my next door neighbor said, hi, where are you going? I said going to see Meryl Streep play me in a movie. And they looked at me like, yeah, whatever. The movie, we saw a very rough cut and was actually kind of a mess. But also, I didn't remember a single thing the minute was over. I think I, I was a little bit in shock. And when the movie ended, um, Spike Jones's mom was there and she said, well, how'd you like it? I said, like, like what? And I, I honestly, I don't think I could process it. When Meryl Streep comes on screen and says, I'm Susan Orlean, I thought, oh my God, I'm having a really weird experience. <laughs> Ultimately, it was a great experience. I love the movie. Um, if you're gonna have someone portray you in a film, I say, you know, better Meryl Streep than really anybody. Um, and it, it was such a fabulous movie that it was, all, it was all pleasure for me, even though it was weird. And people continue to come up to me saying, 
how are things going with you and John? And I think, well, what, what do you mean exactly? It took me a while to figure out that the implication... In fact, somebody on Twitter just sent me an email yesterday. I mean, on, uh, tweeted at me yesterday. Be honest. How many inappropriate sexual advances did you get after Adaptation came out? And I thought, what? I mean, it brings out something very odd in people. But... I'm here to tell the tale. I lived through it, and actually, it was it was a fabulous experience. Which was your uh, which is the favorite your favorite book to have written and to have researched? Oh, um, wow, that that's tough. You know, there I've had. I mean, doing this book was so challenging. It was it was. It was like putting together a gigantic puzzle. Um, and there were times when I just felt like I was getting an incredible education on American history and a million different sort of aspects of history. So it was really rich that way. Researching um, The Orchid Thief was, you know, at times really maddening and crazy and physically kind of challenging. My first book, Saturday Night, which I'm happy to say will be re-released at the same time that um, Rin Tin Tin comes out. And it was five years that I spent traveling around the United States spending Saturday night with different groups of people. And it was, it was incredibly interesting and also an amazing realization that struck me about two years into it that I was spending every Saturday night with total strangers and that... I had kind of walked my way into exactly what nobody wants to do on Saturday night, which is to be with people they don't know. So that was character building. I guess to, you know, the bottom line is that I feel really lucky. I love, I love what I do. I've been really fortunate to get to do it the way I, I like doing it. I'm, I'm kind of slow, but I, 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 really, I really learn a lot as I'm working and I'm really good fun at dinner parties because I know amazing trivia um, that I pick up along the way. It's true, I will attest to that. And I think your natural curiosity is what, what, makes, um, what makes your writing so compelling and, um, because you can take something ordinary. Um, for example, my, one of my favorite essays of yours, An American Boy at Age 10. I, I'm not sure if that's the exact title, but I think you were assigned to do a piece on Macaulay Culkin for Esquire. And then you s decided, no, I'd rather write about an ordinary boy. And it's, it's just one of the most, it's one of my favorite essays ever. Um, oh, thanks. So, Thank I, and I think it, it's just that you finding the fascinating in what um, you know others might might not necessarily recognize at first as being fascinating. That's um, it's really genuine. I, I guess I find I have a pretty insatiable appetite for for learning things and and sort of poking into things that, especially those things that initially don't seem like they're going to yield that much. And that, to me, that's the adventure. Right. So anyway, I read the book. I love it. Rin Tin Tin. And um, it's, you, you won't be able to put it down. And it's, unfortunately, it's not going to be for sale. You have to wait four months to buy it. 
comes out in October. But she, it took her 10 years to write it, so you can have a little patience. Yeah, it's worth so the wait, I'll tell you that. It'll one. be fully cooked yeah. in October, but um, I hope that you will hang in there till October, and I look forward to having it out then. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks, Anne.